From In the Beginning to the Musical Apocalypse, this is The Bible Says What. I'm your host, Mike Wiseman, and on today's episode, I talk with the author of A Call for Courage, Pastor Michael Anthony. Michael believes in the holiness or sinlessness of his creator deity, yet the Bible says that Michael's deity created evil. According to the breathed out words of Yahweh, at one point the evil he created overran the world, so he decided to drown the whole planet. Why did this perfect sinless being create an evil that he was either unable to control or would allow to take over his creations? Neither option points to a perfect being. If killing is sinful, why is it not sinful when Yahweh exterminates the entire planet? After creating evil and unleashing it upon the world, Yahweh, the perfect Christian deity, tells us that he has no other choice but to drown every living creature on earth. This was the best idea that he could come up with. Genesis 6.6 says that the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. Did Yahweh make a mistake? He was so saddened by what he had made, what he had put into motion, that he wanted to start over by wiping out countless innocent animals and infants. How can a being that creates evil and then fails to stop that evil by way of genocide be considered perfect or holy or blameless? Why is he not at fault for the creation of evil? How is he not to blame for unsuccessfully wiping out this evil, for needlessly wanting to kill off an entire planet of beings? Let's start the show. Is there anything in the Bible that you yourself have an issue with? <laughs> Okay, so it took you reading the Bible to realize that those things were bad for you? Yeah, it actually did. I, I didn't figure this out on your own? No, Ted, Ted Bundy could be redeemed. God doesn't kill children. That, what do you think the Passover was? Yahweh sets up a whole system in the Old Testament where you slaughter animals just so he's able to forgive you. Our special guest today is pastor, speaker, and author Michael Anthony. Welcome to the show, Michael. Michael, it's great to be on the program. Thanks for having me, and hello to everybody who's listening. Thank you. Would you kindly tell us a little bit about your most recent book, A Call for Courage? Well, it's it's my first book. It's my debut book. I wouldn't want to be misleading. It's entitled A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. Just came out in March of this year, released by Thomas Nelson Publishers, great publisher. And uh, it's all about helping people stand up and speak out in diplomatic, civil ways in what I believe has become a new world of disorder in our country, where people just don't know how to have civil disagreement. Hmm. Uh, it's, you know, civil disobedience is a word that used to be something that people understood. Now it's the civil part seems to have gone out the window. Hmm. So that's a large part of what the book is about, A Call for Courage. Fantastic. That sounds good. I'll just give you a few preliminary questions so we can understand your beliefs a little better. Sure. Uh, do you believe the Bible to be breathed out words of Yahweh, as, uh, as stated in Second Timothy 3.16? I do. I believe in the original manuscripts. I believe that we have copies now, hmm. uh, very accurate copies, but I believe in what's known as plenary verbal inspiration, every word inspired in the original Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts. Awesome. All right. And so in John 4, 8, it says that God is all love. 
in John, uh, sorry, First John four eight and First John three twenty. It says that God's all knowing and He's all powerful. In Matthew nineteen twenty six, these are all attributes you give to Yahweh, right? Yes, okay. yes, which is the personal covenant name of God, the God of the Bible. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. All right. So the next question I have for you would be, why did Jesus have to die? It's a great question. Hmm. If there was any other way apart from the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus mm-hmm. to be justified before God, then Christ would have died for nothing. So I believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is our one-for-one sacrifice, that the penalty for sin is death, mm-hmm. and that Jesus was God the Father's provision in a sinless substitute. You can, in other words, you can't clean a dirty table with a filthy rag. Okay. So okay. our sin problem needed to t- be taken care of with a sacrifice that was sinless. So the Old Testament sacrifice has pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, who is God the Father's perfect provision. So if there were any other way apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus to get into heaven that Christ died for nothing. So I believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the substitute sacrifice, the sinless sacrifice that satisfies the penalty for, for sin that is biblical, where the, the Bible says that the wage of sin or the price of sin is death. Right, right. So that's why Christ came. So, uh, what was it? Romans Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Uh, exactly. You believe that there is no other way that this could have been done. Um, in Hebrews 9.22, it states that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What does that mean to you? Yeah, it means that uh, it, the life is in the blood. Mm-hmm. The, the book of Leviticus talks about that. The life is in, a, in the blood of an animal or in the blood of Christ. And that's the biblical principle of exchange of life, that one life is exchanged for another life. The question is one of the quality of life. That's why uh, I believe that you can't die for your own sin or I can't die for my own sin because it's that whole you can't clean a dirty table with a filthy rag. Right. Well, yeah, flawlessness, yeah. In the Old Testament, he set up a bunch of laws where you had to sacrifice animals in order to be forgiven. Uh, these right. had to be perfect animals, we know, in the, and um, no blemishes and whatnot. Right. So that's what and Jesus it, was, was the perfect sacrifice that would cover all of these animals. So right. Yahweh needed blood in order to forgive people. And again, I can forgive you without having something be killed. My kids can come to me and I can say... You know, you did something wrong, and they'll apologize, and, and I'll just forgive them. They don't have to kill anything for me. They don't have to shed any blood. This is an right. all-powerful being, not just a normal guy. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me why that would be the only thing he can choose, death over, you know, anything. Well, I, I think you raise a very interesting and credible question. I think you do. I think that um, I'd be amiss to be here and say that I can speak on behalf of God and have his mind in understanding all the things that I don't understand as a human being. I think from the human perspective, it's it's our attempt to look up, whereas from God's perspective, he knows all things from the top down, looking down. So, yes, humanly speaking, we can forgive, mm-hmm. but, but we cannot make atonement for that sin. We cannot be bring into right relationship another person. In other words, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are not only sinners, but we're dead in our trespasses. So sprinkling with water, uh, a religious ceremony, things of that sort, might sprinkle with water. It might be a religious ceremony, but it does not bring a person back from the dead. 
And so spiritually speaking, we're all dead from God's perspective. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So even in our mother's womb, the psalmist said, I I was conceived in sin. Right. But he chose death. He chose this, like, and instead of being, like, giving him flowers and saying, I'm sorry, he chose right. you have to slaughter an animal. And, and in the Old Testament, you've got to sprinkle its blood all over. And sometimes you've got to put it on your earlobe and your big toe. And, and these are all things that Yahweh requires. This is, it's yes. blood magic in order for forgiveness. He takes this life form and he magically turns it into a forgiveness thing. I, how does, I mean, there's no other way to explain it besides blood magic, yeah. but it's, it's pretty fascinating, isn't it? It's it's both perplexing and intriguing and mildly uh, disgusting. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I can, I can understand that. It yeah. is. I mean, he tells me he's a loving God, but yet he requires bloodshed for forgiveness. Wouldn't you think a loving God would require something more simplistic, like an apology, just to say I'm sorry, or like like flowers? I mean, what's so right. wrong with with bringing somebody flowers to tell them you're sorry? Yahweh, right. no, bring me a dead animal. I think that's a great that's a great great question, and I think a couple of things. Hmm. Number one, saying you're sorry might provide forgiveness for that that uh, the act of which you're asking for forgiveness, but it will not change your nature. All right, and this is one of the primary teachings in the Bible that it's not only forgiveness, but it's a change in nature hmm. when somebody accepts Christ. That they are, you know, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So it's not just the forgiveness of sin. It is the by faith the receipt of an entirely new life. So that that couldn't be accomplished simply by asking for forgiveness. The second thing is hmm. the animal animals are amoral. They're not immoral. There's a difference, right? Amoral meaning they don't have a moral nature. They're they're morally neutral. And that's why God could as a type, meaning a kind I don't know. I've seen animals try and save other animals. I wouldn't I don't know. Well, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that they're holy. You know, what, amoral means. <laughs> what does holy mean? What is what is holy? Holy means set apart. Set, set apart. apart from what? Without sin. Without sin. Oh, so so sinless is holy. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. So I think two things. I think you ask a great question, mm-hmm. in that it's not just the forgiveness of a particular act of sin. Like suppose I. Um, Suppose uh, your son mouths off to you and says, hey, dad, you're a turkey, and then comes back and says, I'm sorry. You can forgive him, mm-hmm. but that's not going to change the nature of your son. And this is what's offered through Christ, not only forgiveness, but Whoa. if one is in Christ, they're a new creation. You actually, And that's the life for life, the substitute one-for-one sacrifice that is offered in Christ— in addition to forgiveness, it's so, a whole package. What you're talking about is, is once I become a Christian, it's an instant change, and Jesus comes over automatically, and I, I'm well, a new person. Or like my kid, when he when he does something wrong and I discipline him, or he he doesn't get his screen time, he learns from not doing that, and he comes back and apologizes. He's learning from that experience. He's growing as a person, as a as a moral human being, somebody who does not want to do harm to other people. He doesn't right. need Jesus inside of him to know that things are wrong or that to grow as a better person. Right. Right. Well, there are a lot of people, just to be fair, there are a lot of people who are not religious, Mm -hmm. who don't know Christ as their Savior, who are very morally upright people. Right. I I mean, and then if I can be very honest, Mm -hmm. there there are also people who profess to know Jesus who are actually pretty shameful in the things that they say and the things that they do. 
Well, we got the Catholic Church, for instance. Well, there's also people in the Protestant Church too. If we Very can be true. across Very the true. board, yeah, <laughs> we got well, right. Catholics right. fresh in my mind right now, so you know. <laughs> well, yeah, especially in Pennsylvania. You know, yeah. we got going on here in Pennsylvania. Um, it's just disgusting. So, yeah, and so, um, so I would say it's not either or, Michael. That it's it's not that um, you the moment you accept Christ. All of your sins are forgiven, and you you are instantly changed. That is true in terms of your nature. You receive a new nature in Christ, or a new creature. But that doesn't mean your behavior is going to instantaneously change. Some people are more like crockpots than microwaves. Hmm. Some people accept Christ. From for me, for example, uh, I was more like a crockpot. My change happened gradually. Um, other people I know. Um, have accepted Christ, and they had a dramatic change. Doesn't mean across the board every area of their life, but say in some fundamental areas, there was a very dramatic, instantaneous change for them. For me, it was more like a crockpot, or probably because I'm what the Italians call gavatas, thick in the head. Uh, I'm a slow learner, and so when a person accepts Christ, it's both. It's that they receive a new nature and mm-hmm. are instantaneously seen because of the substitute sacrifice of Jesus, the exchange of life, the blood for blood. They're immediately brought into a right relationship with Jesus. Ephesians says, you were raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But then that, that opens the door to a lifetime of maturing where— Ideally, biblically, we're supposed to become more like Christ in character. Christ in, in character. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so do you believe that the, the Bible, inside the Bible, we can find the character of Christ? We can find out what he's like and his, his uh, attributes? I do. Okay. So mm-hmm. it, I'm just curious as to, does he, he doesn't change, right, from Old Testament to New Testament. Same God, same guy, nothing changes. Perfect still. Well, his nature does not change. Hebrews chapter 11 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but yet functionally, clearly not the same yesterday, today, and forever. For example, Jesus uh, in his incarnation came into the world. He wasn't always uh, the God-man. Now, that became a reality in Bethlehem. So the nature and character of Jesus has never changed. Okay. But the way he has operated clearly has has changed throughout the ages. Gotcha, gotcha. So his rules are pretty much the same um, he, in the Old Testament as they are in the New Testament uh, as far as uh, slavery goes. And I'm just curious as to why he would not t- condemn slavery as opposed mm-hmm. to telling us what to do with slavery. Ephesians 6, 5, uh, slaves okay. obey your earthly masters with uh, fear and respect, as you yes. would the Lord. Uh, I'm just curious why he would put that in there. And, and, and if his nature is to condone slavery, and, yeah. and, and it's supposed to be a good nature, how does that right. work? Well, that's a great, great question. I think, first, the idea of slavery that Paul is speaking about there is a little bit different, more like an, an indentured servant than what we would consider to be like the way slavery was in the United States. Now it says fear and respect. Fear right. and respect is not really telling me that it's it's something lighter than slavery. Right. Well, um, fear plus is a it way says slaves. Reverence. 
So well, yeah, it it does. But the context, in all honesty, is different than say slavery in America. Now, let me finish in saying that doesn't belittle it, right? Hmm. It's still you're definitely that person is not as free as a free person, right? right? But typically, we think about slavery the way we are familiar with it, say, with the British colonies or in the U.S. But there is a difference in the slavery, an indentured servant. And Paul's objective in what he's saying in Ephesians, right, is to try to present to somebody who is a slave, how do you live for Christ in such a way that the gospel is something that is seen as appealing to that slave owner? He's not trying to come against the political system, the law of the land. He's presenting it as a theologian with the objective of salvation and the presentation of Jesus being persuasive and convincing. So it's important to understand what his objective there is. He's not trying to change the political system in a Romanized society. He's trying to help somebody who's in a position of subjugation. How do you live for Jesus when you're in a difficult situation that perhaps might actually convince your 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 slave owner, your mm. owner, to consider the gospel when they otherwise wouldn't. Yeah, but these are the breathed out words of Yahweh. He could have put anything in here. He could have chosen not to put the slaves in here. He could have chosen in what is it, Exodus twenty one twenty, where he says if you can if you beat your slave and he doesn't die for three days, you're fine. Right. I mean Th- this isn't. Right. This is this is a harsh world where you live in fear of your slave master. You live mm-hmm. in fear of your deity because if you don't do what he tells you, well, right. 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty two. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be upon him. Right. I mean, watch out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are. This is a particular passage that has caused a lot of debate and a lot of discussion. Right. Rightly, rightly so. And I would, I would say, with that is the whole idea of. Uh, respect for authority. Paul talks about this in Romans 13. That goes far beyond respect for authority. Fear and respect like a slave is mm-hmm. just goes just beyond that. It's just, just taking it just a t- little bit too far. Don't you I think? think? I think it, I don't know if it takes it too far. I would say that it takes it far. Hmm. Too far would mean uh, then God would be sinning by saying that, or at least Paul, who's supposed to be representing God, would be sinning by saying it. I think when we consider the the weightiness of the gospel and the significance of somebody's eternal state, it could very well be, and this is how I take the passage, and many people take the passage, that the word fear is actually one of reverence and one of respect, that the attitude that Paul could have said is, hey, trash your slave owner and treat him disrespectfully. But then the question is, well, will that make the gospel be more attractive or less attractive to him? The counterintuitive thing would be to respect somebody who might not actually be respecting you and might be considering you and treating you as a piece of property. But can you imagine how that slave owner might actually, the gospel, the Lord Jesus might actually get that slave owner's attention by the counterintuitive response of the slave who had every right to hate the slave owner, if now they're actually respecting them and speaking kindly and nicely, that actually, it's kind of similar to um, husbands and wives, you know, the unbelieving husband or the unbelie- unbelieving spouse being won over by somebody's behavior. So I think that's the flip side of that two-sided coin. I don't know, man. It'd be a lot easier if you're telling me that this, good, this is a good book and a good deity if he just says, owning people is a bad thing. Yeah. Don't own people. That would be 
pretty awesome, actually. Instead, he doesn't do that. He tells us what to do with our slaves. Uh, same with rape. He doesn't condemn rape. He just tells us what to do with these these poor women who now have to marry their rapists. Uh, it's just disgusting yeah. and terrible. But you, you talk of fear as a, as just mainly just respect. But when I look at the Bible, I look at the fear part as in these people are fearing for their lives. They're afraid for their children's lives. And Second Kings, just for making fun of a, one of his apostles or mm-hmm. prophets, uh, he sends bears to maul 42 kids. Right. Uh, these people are scared of him. In Exodus 25, I, am, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the sins of their fathers. This right. is real fear, fear of death, fear of wild animals being sent against your kids in Leviticus 26. So when you tell mm-hmm. and it's the, then when he tells me in Ephesians uh, 6, 5 to, you know, fear him like I would my slave master, I take it pretty seriously. You know, right. he, he's going to punish those who do not know the gospel of Jesus. They'll be punished right. with eternal destruction, Second Thessalonians right. 1. I mean, this is real fear, man. It is, and you see that same type of respect demonstrated by the apostles in the book of Acts, where they disagree with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they still speak respectfully to them. And uh, it's very important to understand that what is at stake is a higher outcome than what you and I would typically think of. You know, in the situation in Ephesians 6 with the slave and the slave owner, the objective is the soul of the slave owner. Right, you're talking eternal life. Right, eternal life, and hopefully it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. You know, one of the scriptures says that. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So a slave who— The kindness of God? Yes. Are you familiar with that scripture? No, I'm just not familiar with the kindness of God. Which, oh. where, where is he kind? I have yet to see any kindness, really. Can, can you point to a verse or a, a story, I, perhaps? I would say through Jesus Christ. That's the most ultimate example of that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, he had to die because Yahweh can't forgive you without something dying. So he had to have something die. He had to make this perfect person, or he could have made a perfect rabbit and sacrificed that. But he decided to make a demigod half himself half human and then kill it well so. you would you would say it's a demigod i would say it's not a half oh. god half human oh it, god man it, it's you know. the god man but yeah. uh, what are you yeah. so excited about in this afterlife what is what is so exciting that you can't wait to get there as a cancer survivor hmm. as somebody who almost died four times as somebody who's a pastor and sees sin on a regular basis I'm looking forward to not being enslaved any longer to sin. So if we want to talk about So you're slave, looking forward to sinless, the sinlessness of heaven? I'm looking forward to being free. And I would say even this, Michael, heaven mm-hmm. is not our ultimate destination. Even people within the church, they think, oh, well, heaven's where we're going to end up. We're going to be all playing harps and dancing around. Oh. Heaven is the, tempor- the, the intermediate state. The book of Revelation talks about the new heaven and the new earth. That's the place where we ultimately end up. Heaven is the place in between, the time in between, but eventually there will be a new heaven and a new earth where we live with God in that new heaven and a new earth. So the it's new not Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem and all of the heaven and the earth that's associated with it. Right, right, right. Um, so, and what I do you think, think you'd be doing in heaven for eternity? Well, again, it's not... Just that we'll be in the New Jerusalem. I think we'll be doing the same types of things that we do now, but without the sinful nature 
And without the, the difficulty, I think there will be work to do uh, because there's, certain, there's a certain degree when you think about uh, back in the garden, even before the fall, the responsibility that Adam and Eve had before the fall, it was there. And so there'll be work to do. Work is worship, and there'll be the enjoyment of God and his very presence, but without the sin nature, without the fallenness. Work is worship? Yes. Work? Absolutely. Can you explain that one a little bit for me? Work is worship. Yeah, when you think about um, the, especially the New Testament passages that deal with worship, the overwhelming majority of them do not mention music at all. Typically, we think about worship being music. But the biblical definition of worship is far more expansive than that. There's right. no, area, no area of life that can be separated from worship. You're either worshiping God with what you're doing or you're not. So, yes, work is worship. The work ability to honor God in all that we do, all that we say, it's, it's all an opportunity Gotcha. So why do you think he, he deserves this worship? Why do you think he, he, he needs this worship or wants this worship? I think he's a God from the very beginning. And I do believe that the book of Genesis is not just allegorical, but, but mm -hmm. um, I think it's that he is a God that likes relationship. We, we were created by design, mm -hmm. by, by a designer who wants relationship. And the proof of that is that he wouldn't let us go on without having an opportunity to be restored to him. He pursued us. That's why the death of Christ is so important. So, so you so, worship him because he's God? That's why? Yeah, I worship him because he's God. I worship him because it gives me great pleasure to worship him. It's very satisfying. Uh, yeah. Huh. So it's just a very weird concept to me. I've never understood that fully, like just to worship something. And you say you get satisfaction from it, which is... Even yeah. more interesting. That well, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, it's, well, it's, that's okay. Well, explain it a little bit to me. Why? Why is that difficult for you to understand? Well, I've never felt the need to worship anything, to bow down, to pray something, to give up something. You know, total and complete devotion. It's so weird, like that. Mm -hmm. like, and then, and then, not only that, but you're going to follow the words that are in a book that he wrote. You know, I mean, and and, and you believe him to be loving too. Love. He's he's. Mm -hmm worthy of worship because he's loving as well do you think i worship him because he's loving i yeah. worship him because um he's forgiving and you, oh and you well um the so the loving part comes from jesus dying that's it is there any place else that you you find love here sure i think even in the old testament you know god's often described well the old testament is god being a wrathful, vengeful God. The New Testament is God being a gracious, merciful God. I don't think it's either or. Hmm. I think it's both and. And it's just uh, a different emphases of the same character, the same nature of God. Do you think vengefulness and wrathfulness and uh, jealousy is a good thing? Well, I think they are good traits. I think they're hard for us to comprehend if we don't understand or appreciate the holiness, the perfection the absolute love of God. In other words, the Bible says in 1 John, not that God is loving, but that he is love. Right, but you and, can't be love and vengeful and wrathful and jealous. And then even in Hosea 9, he's hateful. He hates these people. Yeah, yeah, yeah so he, that doesn't sound loving at all. And then in Hosea 9, he starves children to death. Let's, let's not forget that part. 
I well, mean, that's, there's no love in that. Right. But here's the thing. Yeah. You can't yeah. just have one attribute of God without the other attributes of God. God's so, not so, only love, but he's also in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute of God that's mentioned three times, which is a number of completeness. So God is without not only love, he's also pure and holy. And so the idea of being a God who is jealous, what is he jealous of? In the same way that you're jealous if your wife wanders, I assume you're married. Yes, but that's if, completely different. I'm not going to punish my children if she does. Oh, well, well let's, this is let's talk. Exodus well, let's talk. 20, verse 5, he's talking right. about uh, uh, worshiping other gods and making idols and whatnot. So he tells them, I'm jealous. I'm going to punish your children. Well, let's talk about it just for a second and back up the truck just Sorry. for a moment. Go ahead. That's okay. Um, if your wife was constantly lusting after other men, and you could see her just ooing and aahing over other men, would you be wrong to be jealous because her affections were not for you? No, we probably wouldn't be together. I'd skip the whole there, jealousy part and just be like, okay, well, that, that sucks. See ya. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's, you know, just talking honestly. And so there's a perfect example of the love of God. Even though he knows our hearts are wayward, he offers us the ability to come back and to reconcile. That's that's an example of the love of God. So it's not inappropriate. Oh, yeah, it's but not, that's not what this is saying at all, though. But it's not inappropriate for him to be jealous, as you just demonstrated. It wouldn't be inappropriate for you to be jealous of your wife. Right, if, but I'm not going to punish the children. That's the next part, is he punishes children for this. Right, but, yeah. but, right, right. Well, and once I, you I punish think, children, I mean, that's pretty bad, right? Punishing children is probably not a, you know, especially because you're jealous. It's not really a good reason to punish children. In Hosea 9, he starves them to death because those parents were worshiping other deities. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, that's and I bet, terrible. I bet it, it does seem terrible, doesn't it? I mean, let's, let's just acknowledge the reality here. Mm. Yes, it does seem terrible. And you're talking to somebody who is a Christ follower who I'm not necessarily going to give you pat answers because that would belittle you and your audience. Mm. I, I would say this, however— I bet that God's treatment of the children would be an unforgettable lesson for the adults and future generations about how serious it is Ouch. For, for God's covenant people to take their relationship with him seriously. There's so many different ways. He's an, he's an all-powerful, all-knowing deity. He could have done it in so many different ways. Why threaten children? Why starve children to death? That just doesn't make any sense, man. I appreciate that. And you're allowed to ask that question. If I had the answer, then I would be God, wouldn't I? <laughs> I, think, I think the real issue is, yes, from our human perspective, there must have been another way. Right. Seems like this was the way. And once when you get to see him and I get to see him face to face, we can ask him. I mean, one of the things I struggle with, you want to be honest with you, Michael? Of course. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for with the uh, the return of Christ that every mm. Christian believes in? You know, why can't we get this evil overthrown once and for all so that the struggle is over? If God is omnipotent and omniscient and he is all-powerful and all-knowing and merciful and loving and he hates evil and he's holy and he is love— why doesn't he just deal with evil once and for all? Why did he create evil? I think that's a great question. I just finished reading the whole book of Job yesterday. Oh, I've been read. 
I binge read it. <laughs> I binge read it. <laughs> you, know, you know, you eat potato chips and it's not a good good thing for you, you know. But yeah. I, I've been getting into uh, what I'm referring to as binge reading the Bible. Um, That's fun. It, you know, where you just do a whole thing. Because I'll be honest with you, which might you might not be used to this as a as a pastor hmm. who teaches other people. I have difficulties myself at time with where my heart is toward God, where my heart is toward people. And, um, I'm, I'm not at a heart level where I wish I was consistently. And, and I started taking Romans 10, 17 very seriously. It says, uh, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So I'm a firm believer that to build your faith, you got to lift your Bible. So when I'm struggling in a faith crisis, I read the Bible and I, I binge read, mm-hmm. and th- that helps me get back on track. I've just that's just my own testimony. It helps me get back on track because my mind, my heart, my affections they wander, and I've always I, I always have found that when I have my affections toward God, my affections toward people are much better, much more honorable, and um, there's less stress and tension in my life and. Hopefully, less stress and tension in other people's lives because of the way I'm, I'm at least trying to walk with God, if that makes sense. A little bit, a little bit. Um, so you, you said you just finished Job. I love Job. It's a, it's a very interesting story. Man, it's I'm, something else, yeah. yeah I'm just curious. How you, uh, Job 2, verse, uh, I think it's, there's 3. It says, God shuns evil, but and he still maintains his integrity Though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. And that's God talking to Satan. God is asking Satan, telling Satan that he incited him against Mm -hmm. Job to ruin a man without any reason. Why would God allow that to happen? That's a great question. If you had the answer to that, you would be the world's greatest theologian. Because that's, (laughs) that's the question, one of the key questions that it's asked. In the book of Job. And, you know, I, I kept, you know, I, I've read it before and I've listened to commentators on mm-hmm. the book of Job before. And, you know, you get all the way through to the end of the closing chapters where God finally responds. And I'm going to be honest with you again. Mm-hmm. God's response doesn't really philosophically answer the questions that the book raises. Why do the righteous suffer? Okay, we can give we can give the pat answers, mm-hmm. right? We we can give the answers of well, the devil uh, came before the Lord, and it's actually the Lord who throws it on the gauntlet. Mm-hmm. The Lord says, "Have you seen my servant Job? Well, what, what, can you just leave that guy alone?" And yes, we see the final outcome where Job gets blessed twice as much as from the beginning. He's got twice as many uh, oxen and camel and uh, all this and donkeys and stuff, and God blesses him twice as much, and he's got another. Uh, seven, I think it's seven boys and three daughters or something like that. I'm close to that. He has children again. And you can say, look, it came full circle, but twice as much. Hmm. But that doesn't answer the question. I'm sorry. What in in hell on earth, okay, (laughs) did he have to go through that for in the first place? Right? Daniel 4.35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Mm-hmm. That's why. Yep. End of story. End of story. That's why. Yahweh does whatever pleases him. Psalm 135, 6. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we, do, you, do you believe we get free will? 
I do. Did Pharaoh didn't get free will when he was being hardened by Yahweh? Um, well, well let's nine, just, Romans let's nine eighteen he says that uh, he has mercy. Yahweh has mercy on who he wants to have mercy on, and he hardens who he wants to harden. None of that sounds very free. It, let's talk about that a little bit, okay? Mm-hmm. Because there are five times when in the book of Exodus, correct, it says, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then there are five times, I believe, perhaps I'm wrong mm-hmm. by number or two, um, that it says that God hardened his heart. Correct. So which is it? And here's the thing. Exodus cannot be understood without Genesis, in particular Genesis 12. This is really important to understand here. In Genesis 12, that's the Abrahamic covenant, you know, when Abraham is still Abram. And God says, you know, I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And here's the thing. The Israelites were enslaved for 400 years, violating God's promise in Genesis 12. For 400 years, they were mistreating God's people. At this point, it becomes a faith issue. It becomes a, is God going to make good on his promise? Why took them 400 years? Why did it take them so long? You know what? That's a good question to ask him. <laughs> and I think that's a valid question. I think uh-huh. it's like, you know, listen, man, I've, I've had arguments with God. I had an argument with God in front of my house one time. We lived in Oregon. Oh, man. 15, 15 minutes later, <laughs> a storm came out of nowhere. Oh, okay. Knocked down this huge gum tree in front of our house, swiped our house, landed right where I usually park my pickup truck. And um, I think God, through that storm, was speaking to me about uh, my. You don't know that, though. Well, that's my interpretation of it. Gotcha, gotcha. You know. But, you know, here's the thing. If God made a promise in Genesis 12, see, the whole Bible needs to be understood in light of Genesis 12. That's the foundational covenant for all other covenants and understanding the whole Bible. And that's the whole idea of the Exodus. The whole reason why God hardened Pharaoh's heart is because if Pharaoh was, seems like sometimes he's ready to change his heart. He's going to let the people go. He does. And God says, I don't think so. Not so soon. Hmm. Because it happens in such a way that Pharaoh ends up getting his just desserts in keeping with what hmm. God promised in Genesis 12. I will curse those who curse you. If wow. God let Pharaoh off scot-free, he wouldn't have been keeping his word that he made in Genesis 12. Well, lots of people are cursing his people now and nothing's happening. It's true. Well, we would think that nothing's happening, hmm. but sometimes God's judgment is instantaneous. Sometimes it's intermediate, like with the case of Pharaoh in 400 years. <laughs> yeah, that's Some, a long time. <laughs> it is, and sometimes it's longer than that. Yeah. Uh, but, but in the end, God wins and he rules, and he exercises his, his judgment in a just way. So as far as the Exodus story goes, Pharaoh let him go at the end. And, and then um, he changed his mind. That was after the Passover. He didn't— well, Yahweh changed his mind for him. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart right. uh, so that he would pursue them, so that he would actually go after them, so, so Yahweh can actually kill Pharaoh in some dramatic ocean-spreading way. Right. Um, and even the horses, too. You know, all those chariots and horses, yes. they all had to die. Yes. Sinful Egyptian horses. Um, but well, his, the, his main goal was to create the Passover. Now, wait a second. They're amoral. I'm going to hold on to that. Oh, yeah, they're... yeah. No, no. <laughs> it's we still... Can... It's still not a fun thing to do. I mean, it's terrible to kill animals. I don't understand. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. it is. But Yahweh just does it so willy-nilly, you know. No big deal. It's a horse. Drown it. Well, well, it's the whole planet, you know. 
There's some evil. Let's drown the whole planet. Why do you think he drowned the whole planet in in Genesis? Well, I think Genesis clarifies what it is. The whole world was wicked. Hmm. He didn't really get rid of it, did he? Doesn't seem that way, does it? No. Yeah. So, I mean, it was the purpose in drowning every fetus, baby, puppy, kitten. If you're not even going to get rid of the wickedness and the evil that you created. Maybe the dinosaurs, too. Some people say. Oh, that, yeah. Those dinosaurs were on the ark. Evil. Th- oh. <laughs> Yeah, Some people, yeah. so, that's a whole other discussion. That's a whole other. <laughs> yeah, we can have fun doing this podcast, right? I mean, uh, why not? So Indeed. I love I love these kinds of debates and discussions, and I I absolutely welcome them. And uh, wish we lived closer, man, because we would have some coffee together. And uh, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable with this agreement. I think um, I love these kinds of things because it makes you think. Mm-hmm. It, it um, helps you understand other people. And I, I love the spirit in which you approach this, Mike, if I can say that, because Thanks. Um, why can't we discuss these things? Why I think God, I think God is, by definition of God, if he can't take the questions, then he's not very much of a God, is he? I, well, he's not taking any of my questions, but you are. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. I really do. Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, I'll let you go. I know you got some other things going on today. I really appreciate your time and your answers. Yeah, and uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time here and uh, asking the questions and allowing me to just be real. You know, if I feel strongly about something and I believe I know the answer, hmm. I certainly will say that. And at the same time, I have to know my limitations as a man <laughs> that uh, I'm, I'm limited in my ability to be a, spokes- a spokesman. Can you imagine this? Yeah. For the God of the universe, hmm. I understand what my limitations are. That's because he's pretty quiet. Seems like that. I think he's spoken very clearly in Jesus. Hmm. Um, and I think the resurrection is the clearest statement of God's statement about the life and the teachings and the the authenticity of who Jesus is, because God the Father would have never raised a charlatan, a fake phony fraud from the dead. So that's that's gotcha. his that's his statement about the acceptability of the death of Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and mine. In other words, the crucifixion is one thing. The, we need a verdict then. We need the judge, the jury to come in and say, well, what does this mean? And that's what the resurrection is. The resurrection is the verdict that God's wrath, his ability to remove sin really mm-hmm. was satisfied in the person and the works, the cross of Jesus. That's what the resurrection means. Mm. And that's that's where my hope is. There are a lot of things that I don't understand in the Bible. And uh, if Jesus was able to speak right here into the podcast, he would say, <laughs> he'd say, Michael, uh, I know what was going through Mike's mind all last week as he was wrestling with me. <laughs> and he's telling the truth. There are a lot of things in the Bible that I don't totally understand. But one of the things that I've come down on is to understand what the resurrection means in terms of the hope that I have for the forgiveness of sin and new life and the acceptability of Christ's sacrifice once and for all for the forgiveness of my sins, anybody's sins, and the start of new life. So in in a nutshell, your hope is that the wrath of God has been appeased by the sacrifice of this blood. I think so, because I think that's what the what the resurrection proves. It's the verdict. Gotcha. 
it's the inter- right. it's the interpretation of so what did the cross mean hmm. the resurrection is the interpretation yeah all right man well i appreciate your time thank you so much hey back at you mike thanks so much i'll talk to you later okay bye-bye That's all the podcast there is for you today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show and want to help keep the recording light on, then stop by the Patreon page today at patreon.com forward slash BSW the podcast and sign up to be a supporter of the show for as little as a dollar an episode. Patrons will get access to patron-only content such as bloopers and unaired clips. As always, you can find us at the Bible Says What Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube pages. Please send all of your questions or hate mail to bswthepodcast at gmail.com. That's bswthepodcast at gmail.com. And whether you listen to us on iTunes, Android, or YouTube, you can help others find the show and let us know how we are doing by giving us a rating and or comment. While you are there, don't forget to push that subscribe button so you won't miss out on next week's episode. Until then, would you kindly pick up your Bibles and read them? Read them.